I was at CNU just a few weeks ago, and they had one of those like Britney Spears mics. This was the first time I had ever had one, and I was like, it, it was all I could do not to like break into dance during the song, during the uh, the talk. But I didn't think that would really be helpful. The message, so no temptation there tonight with this one. Um, but my name is Carolyn. Um, I might have to admit my husband is actually really jealous that I'm here tonight. He graduated in 2000, and he hasn't been back to a large group since he graduated. But we have a three-year-old at home, so he couldn't come to. But he sends alum IV greetings your way and wishes he could be here. Um, he'll get here sometime. Um, I was on staff. I am on staff still. Um, this is my eighth year on staff. I was on staff at University of Richmond for six of those years. I trained at Elon down the street. And this year, um, we actually relocated to the Triangle last July. Um, my husband got into a PhD program for math at Chapel Hill 10 years after leaving Duke. Um, so he <laughs> spent the fall relearning how to be a student. And I spent the fall on sabbatical which was um, really, really restful and um, why I was really excited why you asked me to actually speak on this topic because it's kind of where I've been with God, where, kind of where I've been with Jesus for the last six or seven months now. Um, so one of the things you should know about me, so I said I've got a husband who's a dookie, I've got a son who's three. Um, as I was leaving tonight, he said, see you later, babe. So <laughs> that about that about sums him up. Uh, he is hands down the funniest person I know in my life right now. says things like that all the time. Um, <laughs> I have a crazy dog named Hezekiah, who my uh, students at U of R named, um, and it was because they had wanted me to have twins and name them Hezekiah and Agabus. I couldn't tell you why, so we preempted that by getting a dog first and letting them name the dog Hezekiah, so he's still around. Um, but something else you should know about me is that I get hurt in profoundly absurd ways, and often, okay? Best story ever. I was newly married um, and living in a tiny apartment, which is where most newly married people live, especially if one of them is on staff and the other is a teacher. And so I was in our, like, cubicle of a kitchen and, you know, trying to get something out of, the, out of the cabinet. And I open the cabinet and I get something out. And before I am done getting it out, I actually close the cabinet door really hard and proceed to smack my head inside the cabinet and pound the back of my head with the cabinet door. <laughs> and all my husband hears is like, bang, bang, ah! <laughs> he comes running in, he's like, what did you do? Because I'm like this. <laughs> he's like, how did you hurt both sides of your head? I'm like, you married it. Sorry. <laughs> you married it. <laughs> like, that was like a month in. So I was like, this is, this is a bad sign of the last 50 years. Um, but that was one thing. Another thing I did was I, when I was at Rockbridge, I'm, I'm, I worked with the worship track at Rockbridge, and I ended up in a sling at the end of one of the weeks um, because, wait for it, I had a shoulder injury due to tambourining. <laughs> Seriously. Had to go to the camp doctor and everything. Was in a sling the last morning. Tambourining. Trying to explain that to people. Not a glorious injury. <laughs> This is how I hurt myself, things like that. There are many, many more stories. So I, I started to think about that, actually, when I was on sabbatical, because I wasn't actually injuring myself all that often. It's like, why is that? Why aren't I hurting myself? Um, I mean, my son knows it. His first two, like, two-word sentence was, Mommy trips. <laughs> second second two-word sentence was, Go Duke. So, yep. I know. Being trained well by his father. Um, so I wasn't falling a lot. I wasn't hurting myself. I was like, what is going on? And I started to think about this. And so the purpose of sabbatical is that you, like, slow down. And you stop what you're doing. And you, you know, you have time just kind of with God all the time. This was really intimidating to me when I went into it. Because um, for 20 years of my life, so I became a Christian when I was 11. And I'm 31. So for 20 years of my life, 
I had been moving at like work, work speed, basically. Like I do everything really, really fast and really, really intensely. So for 20 years of my life, from the moment I'd become a Christian, I was inviting, you know, friends over off the bus for Bible studies. I was helping lead worship at my church. I was teaching VBS. I got to college. I was leading small groups. I was leading large groups. I was leading worship. I worked in the inner city. I came on staff. I did ministry for six years at U of R. I was always moving. I helped plan a church in my neighborhood. Like there were always these things that I was doing and I was moving at work. And so when I got to thinking on sabbatical, which I'll explain in a second why I didn't want to take sabbatical, why I wasn't injuring myself, I was like, I'm not moving fast anymore. And so the whole like head in the cabinet thing, when I was opening cabinets, I was thinking to myself, I have to move myself out of the way before I close the cabinet. Like these were real thoughts I was having that <laughs> I wasn't having a year ago because I was so, so much thinking about what was next that I would slam something shut before I was even out of the way of myself. I was so focused on what else had to be done, what, what next to check off the list. This is 20 years of my life. And so when we were, when I was leaving Richmond, I said goodbye to my students of six years. Like, that's a hard thing to do. We moved to the Triangle. And my husband had this exciting new program ahead of him. And I was like, okay, I'm going to stay at home with my son, which I've never really done before, all day long, which intimidated me. I, I'm not a naturally mommy kind of person. And, and I don't have a job, and, and I don't know anybody, and we don't have a church. So I have no meetings to go to. I have no clubs that I'm involved in. I have no students to minister. All I have is this little kid to play with. And my two responsibilities all week long were driving him to and from preschool. This was terrifying to me. And at the end of August, and all the staff in the region are posting up on Facebook, like, students arrive tomorrow, retreat this weekend, blah, blah, blah. I was like, God, please give me students. Like, I did not want to take my sabbatical. I was like, I don't want to face this. Like, I don't know what to do with myself if I don't have all these other things to define me. And that's where I found myself. And so those first few weeks of sabbatical, I was a total mess because I had to just stop and come face to face with the fact that at some point in those 20 years, when I was doing all these great things, all these ministry things, all these things for God, serving him, serving others, at some point, I had forgotten to let him serve me. At some point in that, I don't know when it happened, but it happened. And I got this picture in my head. So I'm, I'm like a World War II movie kind of buff. And one of my favorite favorite movies, it's actually a miniseries, is Band of, Bro Band of Brothers, HBO. And one of my favorite episodes in that is this, is this episode that takes place during the Battle of the Bulge. And you just get these, this picture of these guys. They're just living in ice-cold conditions without the right clothing, being battered by the Germans. Just totally outnumbered, totally surrounded. And at the end of this, this episode, all you see are like parts of trees scattered everywhere, blood everywhere, cold ice. It's just desolate. And there's just despair. And I got that picture in my mind. That's my soul. That picture was my soul at that point that I was starting sabbatical. It's a good place to be, especially if you're hoping to come back on staff at the end of sabbatical and you're like, uh, wow, I got nothing to give. So after those two weeks of panic and, and finally seeing that, I was like, all right, it might actually be good to slow down for a little while. We'll come back to my sabbatical story in a little while, but can any of you relate to that? The idea that you're flitting from just kind of one activity to the next. And probably a lot of the things that you're doing are good. Probably most of the things that you're doing are good. You're probably not saying yes to, you know, being a drug dealer or beating up on little children. Like, you're saying yes to good things. 
things that you're supposed to say yes to. You're, you're going to classes, you know, you might be leading a small group, you might be doing all these great things. But if you're like me, you might have that kind of yes syndrome, where you're just always like, yes, okay, I'll do it, yes, you asked me to do it, I'll do it, I'm there, I'm there, call me. I'm happy to be available, sure, yes. But you might be weary, and you might be tired, and you might not even know that you are, because you haven't slowed down enough to know it. It's a hard place to be. And the reason I wanted to avoid my sabbatical is because I just kind of wanted to avoid contact with God. Because I was afraid when I saw that emptiness, that, that getting back in his presence, that, that finding a way for him to, to serve me again was just going to be too painful. Because I'd gotten so used to operating by myself. Operating on my own abilities, on my own talents that I thought were from him, and they are. But I was not letting him be the one that powered those things, or that fueled those things. And so I was weary. I don't know if you can relate, but it's, it's, a, it's a tough place to be. So if you've got a Bible, um, Becca already read the, the passage that we're going to go through, um, and I don't know if it's up there. Great, it is. I think it already was before. So we're going to go through this a little bit and kind of look at this story. And now I was really, I kind of laughed when Allison last night was like, oh, it's Mary and Martha, because honestly, I've never ever wanted to speak on this passage because I hate being the woman that speaks on like the one passage in the Bible that's about women. Um, and it's not the only passage, it's one of the few passages where the women are like actually positive role models, or at least one of them is. Um, but as I was preparing today, I'm like, no, I, I really want to stick with what you guys have been going through because I liked your series. And I really wanted to, to get into this idea. And I think you called it Serving Yourself this week. And I'd kind of like to rename it, um, if that's okay and call it um, Letting Jesus Serve You. And so we're going to get into that here. So we've already read it all the way through, so we're going to kind of take it just a few verses at a time. And let's really look at what's going on here. So the first verse is, Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. So at this point in time, um, being a hostess would have meant a whole lot of work, right? So not only is Jesus coming when there's a there's a party to be had or a dinner to be had, but his disciples, so inevitably these, these 12 other men are coming with him, and a lot of other people would tag along. You know, a lot of the stories in the passages, we've got teachers of the law who are tagging along, other random people. So Martha's not just cooking for Jesus and her sister and herself. She's probably cooking a, having to cook a pretty big meal here. And when you have someone coming over that's, you know, an honored guest, like you want the place to look nice, you want to clean up, put your best foot forward. You know, like I relate to her. I relate to how much she would have had to get done. It kind of makes me think like when my in-laws are coming over and that panic sets in, like, <laughs> there's dust on the piano. Like, ah, like she had a lot to do, okay? And you want to put your best foot forward. And so it says the next, it's, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. This, to me, is like a really, really crazy sentence, actually, because um, she's not standing in the back of the room. She's not kind of in the kitchen working, trying to like strain to be able to hear the teaching. She's not even sitting on a seat next to Jesus, which is where a lot of his disciples would have been. They would have been kind of reclining, waiting for the meal to be served. But she's actually like on the floor at his feet, sitting there. And at that time, if someone was in that posture with a teacher, it meant that they were that teacher's disciple. So they wanted to learn as much as they could for that, from that person, not just for the sake of learning, but so that they could actually then go out and teach those things. And that is where she was sitting. I don't know if any of the men in the room were sitting there, but it says very clearly that she was sitting at the Lord's feet. And it would have been extra crazy because women weren't allowed to do this. Women at that time were not allowed to sit at the feet of teachers. 
That was not their place. They were supposed to be doing what Martha was doing. When there were important people coming, when there was a, a, a rabbi in the house, they were to be serving, and they were to be creating an atmosphere where that teacher could teach uninterrupted. And this woman is not just kind of listening and not doing her duty. She's actually sitting at this place saying, not only do I want to learn from you, like teach me all you can, but I want to learn in such a way that I actually have ministry to give when I leave this place. That was crazy. Like she, she was pretty risky to do that. She's so eager and she's so teachable and she's just sitting there waiting. Um, but Jesus, as he has done before and will continue to do in the Gospels and continues to do, just fucks tradition. He doesn't, we don't see that he says anything to her, tell her, no, he's teaching and she's sitting there. He left her stay. So it goes on to talk about Martha. And it says that she was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Okay, so now I feel like every time someone talks about this passage, we're, we're, sort of, uh, we're sort of told to like shamefully identify with her. Like, oh, I'm so awful for wanting to get all these things done. But I think, I think that's the wrong response because I think it's pretty normal for us. Like, I think she was doing a good thing. This is what was expected of her. This is what she was told was her role her whole life. She was raised to cook and to clean and to create hospitable places for the men in her life. And so she was being obedient to what she thought she was supposed to do. She was honoring the way that she had been raised. This was a good thing. She was bringing food to these men. And in a culture where hospitality was so high, was so valued, this was no small thing, what she was doing. And he kind of belittle her and say, like, oh, Martha, like, why would you do that? Clearly Mary has the better idea. But she wouldn't have had any clue why Mary would have chosen to do that. It was completely crazy to her that her sister would be doing that. It made absolutely no sense. So I don't blame Martha for what she's doing. And I relate to her a ton. Like, I think this is our natural tendency, right? You're told to do something your whole life, and so you do it. And I think, like her, our natural tendency is to see what needs to be done and to do it. You guys are a dupe. Like, clearly you've been responsible throughout your lives to get your homework done and to take tests well. Like, at least on some level, you're shaking your head, but you made it here, right? So clearly you did something okay, like, to get here. So you've been responsible in some way. You've done the things set before you, and you've done them well. And I think that's an okay natural tendency for us. If nobody did the things that were supposed to get done, nothing would ever get done. This, this is a good thing. But her reaction, and her reaction is normal, but the indignancy that she says to Jesus is, is maybe not quite as good. She's just like, you know, how could you let her? How could you let her sit there? She's sort of like, I, I mean, I've got all this stuff to do. Honor me. You know, look at me. Look at all I'm doing and make her come do it with me. A woman's place was not in the temple. A woman's place was not in the schoolyard. It was in the home. Why is my sister not helping me? This is her place. I don't necessarily think she'd think it was wrong that Mary wanted to learn, but she sure as heck thought it was wrong that Mary would not be doing these other things and choosing to learn over that. Then it goes on to say, Martha, Martha. Sorry, that was my New York. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not, not be taken away from her. Jesus' response here is clearly not what Martha expected, or she wouldn't have gone to him with such an indignant, like, tell her to help me, if she thought Jesus was going to be like, actually, you're the one in the wrong. 
you're the one who doesn't get it right now. She's waiting for him to say, you're right, your sister is selfish. Mary, get up, get in the kitchen, and get me some food. I'm hungry, I've been talking all day. That's what she wants him to say to her, right? That's what she's looking for. And Martha is just bored, right? And I think, I think the thing, thing, I think the thing that's really important here too is that not only would she have been totally floored by this reaction, but the disciples would have been totally floored by this reaction. Anytime there's a point in the, in the gospel where Jesus is using a woman for an example and like teaching something to her, I perk up, not because it's a woman and I'm a woman, but because it was so countercultural that he would be teaching these women and using them as positive examples that I gotta think this would have been a really memorable lesson for anybody standing nearby. I don't think the disciples would have soon forgot what Jesus said in response to what Mary said. And plus, you know, you're stressed out over things that, that while they're important, don't need to be done right now. Like, yes, they, they do need to get done at some point, but they're not the most important thing. And what Mary has chosen is, and I'm not going to make her move. He doesn't invite Martha to sit down. Maybe he did. It doesn't say that he did. But this is what he says to her. And I think for the disciples to hear Jesus say to a woman that it is more important that she be his disciple than serve food would have absolutely shocked them. If there were any teachers there, they probably would have been angry. Like he's messing with the status quo again. It's not what they're supposed to be doing. Women can't be disciples. If he had said this to the disciples themselves, like if he had tried to find an example to say, like, it's good that you're sitting here, you're choosing the right thing, I don't think it would have been nearly as impactful because that's pretty much all they did with their time, right? Like they quit their jobs, they left their families, and they followed this guy around hearing him teach all day long. That is what they did with their time all the time. So to say it to someone who wasn't supposed to ever do it, he wasn't just that wasn't just something he was saying for women. It wasn't like he was just setting women free from household work forever in that moment. But he was saying that your primary identity is not in what you can do, but it's in who you are. And who you are is a someone that I serve. And that's what he's saying to her. And that's huge. And he's not just saying it to her. He's saying it so the disciples hear it as well. Because pretty soon, they're not going to have the opportunity to sit at, seat, sit at his seat anymore. Pretty soon, they're going to be out risking their lives, getting martyred, getting stoned, crucified, imprisoned. They're going to have to understand that what they're doing does not define them. And what they're going through does not define them. But this Jesus who serves them defines them. And that's going to be a lot harder for them to understand if they've only been able to sit around listening to him all the time and haven't seen him interact with people who have a different identity from them and need to be set free from that identity. Their identity was disciple. But that he's showing them, okay, everyone's identity can be disciple. Jesus is saying that the heart of what it means to be a disciple is to be someone who consistently chooses to be served by him. He's defining it for them. It's not someone who can maybe preach. It's not someone who can lead a good small group. It's not someone who can empty large groups. It's not someone who plants churches. It is simply someone who is constantly going back to Jesus to let him serve him. That's all it is. And the role of him serving us, letting him be the one that says it's okay to slow down, and in those moments of slowing down, in those moments when we step back and when we choose to be alone with him, 
letting him remind us of who he is, why he came, and therefore teaching us who we are. Because I'll tell you, when you spend 20 years doing, you start to hear all the things about yourself that maybe aren't true. You start to hear all the lies out there. You start to believe the things that universities tell you. You start to believe the things that corporate America tells you or the things that you see on Super Bowl ads. Those things start to define what you think reality is because you don't go back to the one who's meant to serve you. And the funny thing is, too, you know, I think sometimes we panic about the idea of, of stopping. Like you guys, I think you named this, you know, serving yourselves. I think sometimes when we think about that, we panic because it, it feels selfish or it feels like we have to stop doing other things. It doesn't always mean that. But it does mean that we have to learn to cultivate an awareness in ourselves of how to be served, even in the craziest of moments. As you're walking across campus and your cell phone's ringing in your back pocket and you're late to, you're late to class and someone comes in front of you and they've got this big problem and you're trying to, you're panicking because you're thinking, do I pick up the cell phone? Do I ignore this person and get to class? How do I answer them? They're really going through something. Taking those moments to just step back and be like, Jesus, I don't have anything in me that can handle this chaos and handle it well. You have to remind me of who you are and why you came and what I'm supposed to do in response to that right here and right now. And I'll take it one step at a time from there. It doesn't always mean taking three hours to go and sit. Sometimes it just means us learning how to be prayerful and aware of where Jesus is in each of our moments as we're going through the day. Because those other voices, those other things, will just crowd it out if we don't make the effort to do it. And they'll tell us things that are just not true. Now, I mentioned before what the state of my soul looks like at being in a sabbatical, right? The scene from Band of Brothers, and I've, if you haven't seen it, plug, see it. It's really good. Okay? And not the sequel, but another one like it is coming out in like a month. It's super exciting. The Pacific. Anyway, so I mentioned before what the state of my soul looks like. I get really excited about that stuff. Um, four months off, right, is in front of me. I've got this battlefield kind of within me where I just don't know where I am with God. I know that I'm tired. I know that I'm weary. I'm kind of depressed. There's been a lot of kind of crappy stuff, honestly, that happened in my life that year. And I was just mad in some ways, angry with God. Like, why am I at this place? I've served you for 20 years. Why am I so exhausted? How did this happen? How did I get here? And I had to spend each day learning to let Jesus reorient myself toward the cross. I had to wake up each morning and watch Curious George, and drive my son to preschool, and then sit with my Bible and my journal for three hours with nothing else to do. Was I tempted to turn on the TV? Sure, which is why I didn't do it at home. Was I tempted to turn on the iPod? Sure, why I did it in public. So I couldn't, like in restaurants and things, so I, I couldn't really, I guess some people do, I felt rude doing it, so I didn't. I had to just kind of to be there and to be with him for three hours. And some of those mornings, especially at the beginning, I just sat there for three hours and said, I don't want to be here. I want to move back to Richmond. I want to have friends again. I want to have ministry again. I don't want to do this. And then other mornings, I began to feel little glimpses of hope. Because I began to feel again what it feels like to be served by someone. And what it feels like to have little glimpses into energy, little glimpses into being excited about something again, to having hope. 
these places in my soul that, that were battered and bruised that looked like a battlefield, they started to look like what a battlefield looks like a year later. There were green shoots. There were little things that were growing. There were little realizations that I was making about myself. So I was like, gosh, Carolyn, for 20 years, you've operated out of fear, and you've let that drive your decision. That's why you say yes to everything, because you care so much what people are going to do if you reject them, or what they're going to say if you don't say yes. started to see the things in myself that I had believed that were not true of myself, and the things that, about God that were not true about God. I had this totally false understanding of who he was. I thought he was this kind of tyrant. I couldn't have admitted this, and I certainly wouldn't have preached it as a staff worker. When I really started to think about how I was interacting with him, I was afraid of him. I thought he acted capriciously and, and just took things away from you when you really wanted them. And so when I had that time to sit and really say, what's the truth, Jesus? Like, how can you serve me? He began to strip away those things, those things that weren't true about him, those things that weren't true about me, and he began to replace them with deep hope and deep joy. And so I'm standing before you six months later at a very, very different place, at a place where I've, I've been newly reminded that I cannot do what I think I'm called to do if I can't cultivate what I was talking about before, if I can't cultivate that ability to find Jesus in each moment and say, how are you defining me right now? How do you want me to respond to this person that's saying something to me? How do you want me to respond to this hateful thing said to me or this issue of injustice? How do you want me to respond to this pain that I'm going through? Rather than just trying on my own to continually do and do and do and do. To just check all the things off my list. So slowing down, it was painful, but it was really good. <laughs> Learning to sit again like Mary at the feet of Jesus and just take in the truth about God with the intent at some point to, to go out again and, and begin serving others when my sabbatical was done. It was so life-giving. And so now I've been working again for two months, I guess. I'm not on a campus yet. I'm just kind of traveling around speaking, actually, for the semester working with worship teams and just going to large groups. This is, I think, my sixth large group of the semester. I'm going to be at Chapel Hill next week and NC State the week after. and It's been a blast. It hasn't been a burden. I, I have been, they gave me the scripture last night, and I spent the whole day just pouring over it, and I was so excited that I had the opportunity to read it and the opportunity to be here tonight. It wasn't a burden. And they called me last night, and they're like, tomorrow? I was like, sure. <laughs> Still got nothing to do but drive my kid to preschool, so okay. You know, it's that and prepare talk. I was excited to come. I'm learning more and more this truth that the heart of what it means to be a true disciple is just to let Jesus serve me. So, what does this mean for you guys? I imagine so. There's a lot of people in the room, and you're not all in the same place. Okay, you're not all from the same place. You don't all have the same background. You're not all going to the same place next year. Some of you are seniors. Some of you are finishing your first year here. Some of you might be studying abroad. There are a lot of things before you. And there are a lot of ways that you can approach those things. But this is what I think it means. I think it means for you learning how to be totally countercultural. Okay? Because the campus teaches us to be busy. It teaches us to find our identity and what we can do, what we can accomplish, and how little sleep we can survive on. Right? 
We brag about it. I only got four hours of sleep because I had three tests. Well, I only got an hour of sleep because I had 17 tests. <laughs> I did it. I did it. I pulled the all-nighter and I bragged about it in a way that sounded like it was really hard. You know? You do that. You've done it. You've done it. That is what the campus tells us is true. It teaches us that always saying yes to the opportunities in front of us, whether good or bad, shows a level of commitment and focus only known to the elite. If we take every opportunity, if we have grabbed hold of it, we will be all that we can be. That's what we're told. Now let me tell you something, this lie, that, that busyness is fulfilling and makes us important, it's going to follow you right into adulthood. Now, I know you're already adults. What I mean by that is going to follow you right after graduation. Okay? It happens in the church. It's subversive. They won't come out and say it. But you're taught it. Sign up for this committee. Help with this church plant. Be on the worship team. Meet a small group. Do all this stuff. And you say yes, because you learned how to do it in college. Which is why I was a 31-year-old burnt-out person. America honors it. Parenting buys into it. How good are you parenting? How successful is your three-year-old? Can you recite the 50, however many presidents? That's pathetic. I don't know. I'm just going to lay that out there. Don't know what president we're on. Can you recite all of them at the age of three? You know, like parents compete with each other for how smart their kids are as if they had something to do with it. It happens. I'm glad my kid just says, see you later, babe. I'm like, he doesn't need to know more. He's three. Three. Have fun. And America honors those who work to the detriment of their own well-being and their families. Okay? It just does. It just does. So the culture you're in now at this school and the culture you will be in when you leave, nine times out of ten, is only going to reinforce the lie that busyness makes you important. And humility always means saying yes. But it's not true. So I think your response could play out a few different ways here. I promise I'm almost done. <laughs> so some of you are overcommitted. Maybe. And exhausted. And you probably can't even remember the last time that you had a good long chat with God. But we're able to just like sit quietly for any amount of time. That might be like a really distant memory for you. Maybe it's even been longer still since, since when you've had those times that you've even felt connected to God. You're just feeling distant. To you, I challenge you this week to take a retreat of silence. This is a really practical challenge, okay? Not, not sort of abstract, not, oh, I can think about that. This is something to do if you want to try it. Plan a two or three hour slot one day. It might mean canceling something that you have to do or that you think you have to do, but you don't really have to do. It might mean canceling it. It might mean turning your cell phone on silent, not just vibrate, and letting your voicemail work. It probably means leaving your iPod in your draw home and just go somewhere. You've got this gorgeous campus. You've got this garden. I've had a retreat of silence in your garden before, actually, a long time ago. Two to three hours. Bring along a Bible, maybe. Maybe a journal if you want to. You don't have to bring anything if you don't want to. But just sit for a few hours. Just slow down and just kind of take a look at the state of your soul. And, and whatever you see, don't panic. Don't try to fix it. You can't. But just invite Jesus into that and say, okay, Jesus, this, this is the place, this place right here, this little dead. I need you to serve me. I need to be reminded of truth that will speak to this place and that, that, that looks like that battlefield. I challenge you to do that. So some of you, maybe if you didn't fit into that first group, maybe you're really good at taking a break. 
each day. Maybe you're really good at having a quiet time or devotional or whatever Christians might call it when they spend time with their Bible in a journal and write down things that they're thinking or praying. Maybe you're really good about that, but maybe it's just kind of become another thing on your checklist. Maybe it's something that you actually write into your little planner and put a little check next to or cross it out when it's done. Some of you are like, yeah, I do that. I do it. I know you do because I did it in college. And then I got rid of planners. Okay. <laughs> but my challenge to you this week is to try something different. Because, so I've been married almost for seven years, and I dated my husband for two years before that. If we, every day, spent our time together the same exact way for nine years, we would hate each other. We would. We would be bored of each other, tired of each other. We wouldn't understand where the spark had gone. Because we wouldn't be creative. We wouldn't be making an effort to know each other and know each other in a changing way. So be creative. Try something new. God is the same way. If we approach him the exact same way every time we try to spend time with him, it is going to get old. You aren't going to feel connected. You have to try new things. Instead of reading, if you're, if you're an avid Bible reader, try a prayer walk this week. Or put on you know, some music and drive somewhere and sing at the top of your lungs, and then when you get there, just sit in silence for an hour. And let God work those words of the worship song into your heart so that you believe them. Because I know that I don't always believe the words that I sing very well. Try something different. Talk to the people around you and ask you what they do. Get ideas from people. Don't be so private about God. Help each other in this. This is my third challenge. Some of you just have no idea what it even means to let someone serve you. Okay? The very idea that you would accept something from someone else, well, it either makes you feel guilty or selfish. And you, you can't even wrap your mind around the idea that the God that you're supposed to serve actually came to serve you. But he did. And one of the most memorable parts of scripture for me, not this scripture, but a different scripture, is in Mark where Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he says this in response to disciples who are saying, Jesus, how can, how can we get honor, basically? Like, who gets to sit on your right? Who gets to sit on your left in heaven? And he's like, look, guys, you have got to learn first how to let me serve you before you ever can have a place of honor in the kingdom. And so if, you're, if, you're, if you feel selfish by taking moments away to be with the Lord, if you feel selfish by saying, I need Jesus to serve me, well, that is just not the gospel. That is not what God wants you to feel. You are not being selfish. You are claiming what is rightfully yours. If you say, yes, I want Jesus to serve me. So let me challenge you this. <laughs> Our very Savior, who gave his life, life up for us, said that his mission, if, if sorry, I'm going to start my sentence over. If our Savior, who gave his life up for us and said that our mission, his mission in the world was to serve us, then we need to make it our mission, if we can't let him do that, to learn how to let him for the time being. Like, put away some of the other things that you are trying to do on your own strength and learn to let him serve you. Because at some point, you're going to end up a 31-year-old burnt-out mom or dad. <laughs> if you can't learn that it is not selfish to take that time for yourself, it is not selfish to take that time for yourself. It is just not. It is not selfish to let him reorient us towards the cross because the more we understand the truth of the gospel, the more we understand the good news that our identity has been totally taken up into a God who served and came as a ransom and put himself in the place 
of death so that we would have life, the more we understand that, the more used we are to those around us anyway. We just are. And when we can understand this, we won't ever be serving out of guilt or a sense of false humility. We'll be, felt, we'll be serving out of this sense of, I have been given so much and served so well by my Savior that I have to make this known to other people. And that's what will compel you out of yourself. So what would it look like if Christians could truly understand this? Truly understand this call to primary discipleship, that our primary identity is to be sitting at his feet. To learn how to, in each day, even in the moments of busyness, make it our first priority to be served by Jesus. To wake up each morning and say, I have all these things, and they're good, and they're important, but this is what I need. is to sit at the feet of Jesus. To take in who he is, so that I can better put out who he is to those around me. What would it look like? To know that my identity is found in the undeniable and life-altering reality that I have ultimately been served by a Savior who was so countercultural that his way of serving was to die. And to serve us by setting us free from the tyranny of sin, of death, and of status. He didn't bring us into some this religion, some list of rules that tell us that we have to be humble and that we have to do a certain number of hours of community service. He brought us into a relationship where we are so loved and so served by who he is and so filled up with life and energy as a result that we can't help but serve those around us. That's not religion. It's not what any other religions are preaching. Okay? So I think if we looked at it this way, there'd be a whole lot less competition in the kingdom and a much deeper understanding that each of our gifts is meant to be used in complementary in complementation, sorry, to one another, as we as a body are continually served by Jesus himself. We would be so comfortable in who we are and so secure in the fact that we are served that we would rejoice in the different gifts of one another and we'd work better together. We wouldn't just be out there doing and accomplishing. Jesus came so that we would be served, ultimately in his offering his life for us to have life and daily as we work out our understanding of how to live this life he's called us to. Let me pray for you. Jesus, this is hard for me. I want to do. I want to accomplish. I want to be available to people all the time. And I want to believe that saying yes is ultimately the humble response to everything. God, but your scriptures teach us otherwise. And you told the people in your life to slow down and to seek you out and to be healed by you. Not to be so wrapped up in our list of things to do that we lose sight of that and, and, and eventually burn out. God, but to be so entrenched in the understanding that you offer us life and that you are there every day serving us reminding us of grace, reminding us of your love for us, reminding us of what you've done for us. That we can't help but sit at your feet, take that in, and then be changed by it. So God, I pray for these students that whichever of those responses they need to be thinking about, that you would give them the courage to pray about it, the courage to think about it, the courage to interact with it, and maybe to take a step of faith and and respond this week. I pray that they would challenge each other, that they would encourage each other, God, we have such a habit of keeping things secret and seeking you alone. 
Let us not do that. Let us boldly share with one another the ways that you are calling us to let you serve us. 